Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things Substrate, Polkadot, and Web3. In this episode of Relay Chain, I spoke with Jamie Burke from Outlier Ventures. Outlier Ventures is currently running a Polkadot accelerator through their Basecamp program. In Basecamp, Outlier selects interesting projects who are building on Polkadot and will make investments of capital, time, and training. Some employees from Web3 Foundation, including myself, are mentors in the program providing protocol expertise, but all selections were made by the Outlier team. This conversation went a little longer than our typical Relay Chain episodes, but I thought Jamie had really insightful and original ideas and I couldn't stop asking follow-up questions. With that, I hope you enjoy the episode. Today on Relay Chain, we have Jamie Burke. He's the CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, do you want to give a quick intro of yourself, like your uh, background and um, what Outlier Ventures does? Sure. So I'll start with Outlier Ventures, really, just because it's occupied nearly a decade of my life quite uh, quite scarily. Um, so Outlier's been around for eight years. We were the first institutional blockchain investor in Europe, one of the first in the world. And uh, over that period of time, we've kind of, of course, evolved our thesis and like our business model. And so for the last couple of years, we've distilled all that learning down into being an accelerator. And we will accelerate, uh, we're near to our 100th Portfolio Co. this fall. And just to kind of give you an example of both our rate of growth, but also what's happening in the wider ecosystem, we're going to double that in the next 12 months. So we're going to double what we did in eight years in in 12 months. Don't ask me how. But um, that's apparently what we're going to do. And of course, one of those is through an accelerator with Polkadot, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But effectively, you know, we've been investing in you know what, what we now regard as the metaverse, the open metaverse, as a kind of framing for the direction of Web3. Um, but of course, prior to that, really, you know, thinking through what does this Web3 stack mean? both in terms of a technology set, its primitives, but also as an economic system. And so, you know, the the framing now in the context of the metaverse is how can we extend this economy that we built, this permissionless financial system, and extend that into gaming, virtual worlds, and anything that you could imagine in the context of metaverse. I think something that's really interesting about Outlier, just that I noticed in my research, and I think we'll talk about it a little bit more in the middle of the show, is just how open you are with some of the information. Um, like you said, you have 100 portfolio companies, and like if you just go on the Outlier website uh, under the research tab, you publish like kind of like more than weekly just a lot of information about not just these individual projects, but also just about like general trends in the ecosystem. And um, you're a lot more open than other uh, VCs who might kind of you know, use their information as edge or something. Um, you're just kind of like constantly putting out these research reports that are, I think, really valuable and insightful. Thanks. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, sometimes it feels like actually maybe we put out too much, um, but we, we just kind of have this culture of thinking out loud, you know, because back in the day, we didn't have a load of capital to deploy. And also, you know, as we've tried to navigate the space over the last eight years, it's just increasingly complex. Um, so, you know, we're we're like 40 plus staff now as a partnership. So we're, we're quite unique in that um, we're not a GPLP fund in that we're not a bunch of GPs that manage other people's money, LPs. 
Uh, it's our own money, and it's the money of, I think, near 35 partners, individuals. We've just taken on um, our first institutional partner. Um, we're going to do a big announcement as to the kind of mix of those new partners, which is which is really exciting because we are bringing in partners that reflect kind of three areas, domain areas for us, which we think are critical to invest in and navigate the metaverse, which is not just technology, but finance and culture. Um, and of course, like this year has really, through NFTs has really shown like the, the power of the Web3 stack in the context of culture and cultural artifacts, cultural assets, um, and the kind of financialization of creative industry. So we're, we're kind of increasingly reflecting that across the partnership, but even with, you know, whatever it is, uh, 35 staff, 35 partners, it's still impossible for us as one organization to ever fully be able to navigate the space, its nuances. You know, we have people who are specialists in game theoretics and, you know, um, engineering from a technology perspective, um, economics, people have worked in capital markets their whole lives. Um, and yet still, you know, every week there's just a new thing that you've got to get your head around. So for us, we've always proactively and deliberately thought out loud in order to attract like-minded people to help finish our thoughts, refine them, pull them apart, develop our thinking. And so, you know, we've always had this ecosystem mindset. And so actually it was quite natural for us to become an accelerator because effectively an accelerator is just a, a, a kind of platform for one of a better word that mobilizes or catalyzes an ecosystem around a cohort of startups. But really that, that's been built around this thought leadership stuff. So we've always tried to be quite considered in our thinking, but always been incredibly open about it. And so I'm glad that, I'm glad that that's getting through to people like you. Yeah, uh, I find it quite valuable. So I, I want to start out with just kind of like a, a general definition of, of Web3 and then the metaverse and then start talking about this metaverse stack and like how Web3 fits into it. And I really wish that I started my research for you like maybe a week or two ago because I actually got caught off guard myself uh, at Masari Mainnet. I was presenting about Polkadot and with 17 seconds left, um, so I, I had just given like an update on like Polkadot's accomplishments over the last year and some of our roadmap and kind of like top priorities. And uh, with 17 seconds left in the session, somebody asked me, what is Web3? And I just kind <laughs> of like froze and I was like, oh shit, like I should have an answer to this. Um, I mean, I've been working on Polkadot for three years. I work for the Web3 Foundation um, <laughs> and I was just like, it was a different track in my mind. And then uh, I was watching one of your interviews from like a month or two ago. And you just said Web3 is a collection of protocols that prioritizes users over platforms. And I was like, shit, I wish I had watched that and uh, had that in my pocket for um, <laughs> standing up there caught off guard uh, without an answer to Web3. So thank you for that. But also like specifically in this context of the metaverse, um, something else you, you had said is like a general definition of like, well, there's one metaverse um, or at least one open metaverse. And it's this open layer that connects multiple verses where value and identity are transferred and owned by the user. So can you talk a little bit about what that means and specifically like in the context of Web3, such that these protocols of the metaverse prioritize users over any particular platform within them? Yeah, so uh, so we'll start with Web3. And it's, it's funny because if you hadn't told me that answer that I gave them somewhere else, I probably would have given a totally different one. And you know, this is, because there's so many different ways to say it, right? But Ultimately, for us at Outlier, Web3 
as you say, is centered around user centricity. And that can be versus platform and shareholder supremacy. Um, you know, the owners of those platforms, it can be against concepts around the state. But ultimately, the idea is that the user is at the center of the equation and concepts around sovereignty, sovereignty of the individual, their data and their wealth are, are kind of the, the core design principle. So everything should be optimized to that. And of course, that's in contrast to the way that the web works today, which is biased towards platforms and, and their shareholders, almost or increasingly at the expense of the user. And you know, similarly, if you look in the context of what we're now witnessing with crypto and kind of the regulatory landscape that we're finding ourselves in, especially in a US context, the reality is platforms are open to capture or coercement by the state. And often that's felt fairly theoretical. You know, when you've argued that in the past, it, it feels like you're just kind of a hardcore libertarian. And everyone says, ah, yeah, but we're in the West and it's okay. And, you know, we're, we're generally okay with um, the governments that look after us and our well-being. Um, the reality is, as we're now seeing with crypto, there is this new emergent financial system, whether you call it DeFi or just crypto more broadly. And like, without a doubt, of course, it has many, many failings or things that could be improved. But without doubt, it is a financial system that prioritizes innovation, competition, efficiency. Like it's, it's almost the perfect financial system. Now it's nascent. And to be honest with you, the fact that only a small subset of crypto even use things like DeFi, because it's hard to understand, risks hard to understand, UX is poor. That kind of, in a way, insulates it from wider retail adoption. But the fact is this, if I was a regulator, and I'm thinking about what is my responsibility as a regulator of capital markets um, or any market. Well, it's firstly competition, competition through innovation and to deliver like a hardcore financial benefit to the end user. That is not what the current fiat financial banking infrastructure system does. But despite that, regulators are perhaps understandably looking to control, coerce, limit, restrict this new financial system. And so you can debate the motives, but like the, the outcome is still the same. Now, regulators can stop Facebook and Libra, but they can't stop DeFi. And I think this really brings it home, right? So for us, it's kind of the unstoppableness that comes from having this permissionless financial system. But at the core of that, it's centered around, you know, the individual and sovereignty. But I think most importantly, when you talk about the sovereignty of the individual, that somehow feels like it must be at the expense of the collective. Um, but as we know, with things like DAOs, you can still preserve the sovereignty of an individual and allow for the sovereignty of a collective. Um, it's just more fluid. And the idea that as an individual, I can opt in and out of a system, of an economy, of a DAO, like whatever the structure freely, and I can transfer my assets freely. You know, this is really for us what brings to life Web3. Now, what does that mean in the context of the metaverse? So, you know, naturally, like probably everybody else in this space, 
what I've just described has been the motivating factor for us, like why we have dedicated eight plus years of our life to the space, invested in, entirely in it, and hopefully have made a little bit of an impact in enabling new projects with those principles to come to market. But it's also been quite narrow, right? If you look at, I don't know how it's been for you, but trying to explain to you know friends and family what you do, like if they're not really thinking about money, like what is money? And they're not really thinking about like the fiat system and what's wrong with it. They weren't really inclined to go to Binance and buy ETH, right? They just don't get it. Not interested. It's not real. Yeah, or even like not even what is money, but just like what is computation. It, it would be kind of like saying, well, we have this thing called a computer, and somebody thinking the only application that you could build on it would be like a spreadsheet or like right. a bank, right? Like um, you can express a lot of different things within these systems, right? And look, you know, there's still parts of crypto like Bitcoin maxis that still think in that way, which is just in, in, insane to me, right? That you'd only have one application uh, for this kind of stuff. So, but all of a sudden, I think. With NFTs, and of course, I've been aware of NFTs for as long as I've been in crypto, not not really been a major area of focus until probably summer of last year when I began collecting, and, and that began to bring to life all the uh, non-fungible use cases around crypto. And we, of course, began to see it with art. Um, and then there were hints at gaming. We saw Ave Gotche, this idea that actually you could have some method of reward on top of a fungible economy that didn't debase that underlying economy rather than just giving away yield that could act close a loyalty loop so you know you have kind of yield which is kind of acquiring users but then you need something to retain users which um, nfts kind of neatly did in the context of arva gotcha and that really triggered my thinking as to okay well you know we've we've looked at what's been possible in a fungible context which is primarily looking at it as a currency or as a commodity. And I've always thought of things like ETH as digital commodities. But again, that's like fairly narrow. Um, not everybody's going to understand it. But of course, all of this underpinned Web3. All of a sudden, with NFTs coming to the fore, you could begin to think of use cases that were perhaps a little easier for the average person to understand. So started with art, then kind of collectibles, now PFPs. Um, now play to earn with gaming and axes. And all of a sudden, most people in my network got it. Like something clicked and they understood all of a sudden why it was important. And often they ended up buying crypto um, as a byproduct of having an NFT that to, to be able to buy the NFT or to be able to sell the NFT. And then they started to have a MetaMask wallet. And then they started to understand the idea of transferability between NFT marketplaces or minting platforms, the idea, well, I can buy it here and I can sell it here freely, I think like really brought to life the idea of self-sovereignty, um, self-custody of required transferability for, for the average person. Yeah, actually what kind of like made it click for me because I, I was maybe in the opposite boat where I've kind of like similarly been uh, involved in, in blockchain and crypto stuff since like 2012, 2013. And I actually like kind of struggled with the NFT and, and digital art stuff for a while. And then um, someone who's like an advisor to Web3, to Web uh, Angie, she told me her thesis on, on NFTs, which made a lot of sense to me. And that is that basically like in the like the 90s, status symbols were basically like homes, cars, uh, art, fancy China, the kind of stuff, like everything 
in that set is like stuff that's within walking distance of where you live or like it is where you live. Whereas now, like a lot of people who are like, even like very wealthy would live in like a camper van or like be a digital nomad. And their status symbols are like a selfie in front of the Eiffel Tower uh, or something like this. And so like, they want to actually own that. And like, this is mine. Like I want to be able to take it wherever I go with me and not have it like owned by Instagram or something. Yes. Exactly. And also, like the way I've increasingly begun to understand NFTs are, and it's not limited to this, because of course, NFTs could be like an insurance policy. You know, I mean, there are infinitely more non-fungible use cases than there are fungible ones. But I think the most immediate implementation of NFTs are, they're kind of a, a form of social media, like they're a social media without a social media platform. Um, and so that can be for status, but it can be, you know, status in a kind of social context, you know, macro one, micro one. Um, it can allow for engagement between a creator and a consumer of, of a thing or an experience. And, you know, the, this idea that when, once you start to see it in that context, you go, well, actually, yeah, an audio file is kind of like a digital LP. Like people can start collecting music again. Like until now, the internet's just turned music into something you you consume. You stream it. You don't think about it. You listen to it outside of an album for the price of a coffee cup. You don't really care about the relationship between that thing, that creative asset or artifact, and its creator. Um, the provenance is kind of entirely broken. So the relationship with music has has effectively been broken as a consequence of the web. Now, all of a sudden, NFTs kind of restore that. They restore the relationship of owning music and music allowing you to become part of a community, part of the provenance um, of that artist, their journey allows the artist to have a direct relationship with their fan. And of course, that's just one example. We can look at gaming and, and play to earn and the idea that... So, so basically, all of this kind of came into this thinking about Web3, there's, there's, there's now all the stuff we've been talking about in fairly narrow financial context, or as you say, in like compute, we're gonna, this is going to allow us to have more decentralized applications. It's still like very abstract. We, we, we went away over Christmas, beginning part of uh, this year, 2021, first week of January, published the Open Metaverse OS. And that was that we believe the Web3 stack and this kind of aggregate economy would enable a more open metaverse um, across lots of different use cases, be it music, gaming, things like uh, the um, creator economy. So forms of digital value currently that are trapped in platforms. So if you think about all the socialness and status and attention that is created in Instagram or TikTok, that it resides solely in that platform, you can't transfer it out, you can't exit it, um, whatever time and money you invest into that platform is stuck in that platform. And the only way value is taken out is when it's extracted by the shareholders of that platform. Maybe some of the ad revenue shared, but like a very small slice of it. And that's true for gaming and, and any other platform, right? Fortnite, you know, you could spend a million dollars in there. You could spend three years of gameplay. And when you get bored of it and you want to exit it, um, you can't. And equally, you can't go to a bank and get a loan on your skins in Fortnite, right? It's not regarded, it's not recognized as value. And so if you think about 
all of this value, digital value, trapped in platforms at the moment, the idea is, could Web3 unlock that value and allow it to become collateral in Web3 and things like DeFi? Yeah, you kind of uh, just front ran one of my questions here about um, kind of taking this value from like these platforms, like say you have like reputation or a following or something in a game or a social media platform. Um, and, and you talked in other interviews about kind of using that as collateral in, in DeFi or something. Um, how do you adjust for like the risk of being deplatformed? Like I, I kind of understand that like if you have a, a Web3 platform where the user actually controls like their followers and everything kind of like about their reputation and it's kind of like portable for metaverse or from like instance to instance within this metaverse that's valuable and that the user kind of like has possession of it but if you wanted to like this is kind of like the classic like well how do you tokenize something that's a real world asset like a painting how do you tokenize something that would be like your followers on twitter and still account for the risk that like twitter could deplatform you or do we just have to basically build out all of web3 and there's no transition at all and it's just like a jump over yeah so how web2 engages with web3 i think is the unknown but what I would say is this, like, and I, and I don't necessarily have the answer to that, right? But what I would say is directionally, there are like known forms of digital value that are already quantified, but are non-transferable, like XP in a game or your know, gaming items, or, you know, you'd have to sell your account that owns those things to somebody. You'd have to like hand over that account and do some transaction outside of that economy, outside of that platform. And then there are other forms of value that aren't currently quantified, like influence, as you say, like maybe it's views, maybe it's subscribers, but it can often be quite difficult to quantify financially. And so the way that we look at it is, you know, with this tooling, it enables creators and communities to begin to quantify value, value flows to almost an atomic level. And as long as there are other people that believe in that value and are prepared to exchange that thing for another thing, um, then you have a market. Um, and because it's a free market, it's entirely open, it's entirely permissionless, you know, where there is genuine value, markets will form. And actually, one of the really interesting things is, on the one hand, I think it's fairly safe to say with what Axis has done with Play to Earn, you know, it's now the highest revenue generating game on the planet, beating AAA games, AA games, free to play, like any category you want. It's generating more revenue from them from a much smaller player base, like 1 million players. Compare that to Fortnite with, I don't know, however, however many hundreds of millions of users it's got. So I know for a fact the gaming industry is going, okay, well, actually, maybe this does make sense. Right, maybe we need to be integrating Web3 or Web3-like technologies into our digital economies to allow for transferability. So the beginning part of this year in our report, we, we reported the stat that uh, I think came through the Blockchain Gaming Alliance that in blockchain games, people spent five times more money than in non-blockchain games. And everyone poo-pooed it in the beginning because they said, ah, but the sample size is too small. It's not comparable with something like a AAA game. Um, and then, you know, six, seven months later, you look at Axies. And the reason being, and somebody did a really great chart on this. So Gherv Axies shared a chart on Twitter a couple of days ago, which showed the drop-off or retention rate of users in the first month versus, I think, the first six months or something like that. 
and they were identical. Um, and that's like never been seen in a game before. And uh, Lightspeed Ventures, um, I've forgotten her name for my sins, um, but she's a, a partner at a GP, I think, at Lightspeed Ventures. And she said, this is what holding down a job in a metaverse looks like. This is not playing a game. And I know Jiho's always been at pains to say, Axis is not a game. It's a digital economy. And so, you know, I think games are going to, gaming companies are going to, look at that as a commercial opportunity and they're going to begin to open up. But the interesting thing is about DeFi in the context of the metaverse, which we we kind of internally at least call MetaFi, is the idea that you don't necessarily need the permission of the platform to allow people to collateralize and, and trade value. And what I mean by that is, um, and there are some nuances to it, but like speaking generally, um, let's say uh, I have a particular gaming item in a game. It's worth a lot of money. I want to sell it or I want to borrow against it. Well, I can't do that in the platform. It won't let me sell it directly as an item. But maybe I can transfer it somehow. Like I can lose it in a fight or I can leave it on the floor or I can, there's some way for me to like hand over that item and maybe it's me giving my account um, that, that owns and controls that item. Now, I could come to an agreement outside of that platform, leveraging smart contracts and things like uh, DeFi. We've got a portfolio code called Boson Protocol that allows for thing tokens and uh, promise tokens and allows for this kind of game-theoretically secured exchange where I could agree to give you an item in-game somehow and we could count, and if, as long as that um, transfer happens in game or in the real world, by the way, then the tra- the financial traction would complete, kind of like an escrow, complex escrow. So in theory, I can create derivatives of value in platforms and I can transact those outside of the platform without the permission of the platform. And so I think those platforms that might resist integrating into Web3 will increasingly see these, for want of a better word, like black markets, just trustless ones, exist outside where people are creating derivatives in DeFi. And then they'll probably get to the point where they'll go, well, shit, you know, there's like been a billion dollars traded in this black market. Maybe we should like think about taking a little bit of a transaction fee on that and formally integrating it. So I kind of see that as really unstoppable and its application across the metaverse near limitless. And like, if, if, if I may, I'll come back to like the beginning of, your original question, which was like defining Web3 and then defining the metaverse or the open metaverse. So as we were like thinking about, well, what does Web3 mean in the context of the metaverse and what we call the open metaverse OS, it was, well, what is the metaverse? And again, like if you think it's hard to get an agreement on what Web3 is, it's like even harder, like just Google it or like go on YouTube and try to find any, like any two people agree on, how you define the metaverse. But how we define it is um, putting aside specific technologies, the metaverse is this interface layer made up of innovations in hardware and software that blur the physical and digital. Like you could say that's VR, you could say it's AR. Actually, we don't think it requires any one of those. Some make it more immersive than others. But I would argue, you know, Zoom could be a very early example of of the metaverse, right? 
But the difference is, as you said, there is a, there's a single metaverse. There's not lots of metaverses. In principle, anyway, there should be a single metaverse. If you go back to like science fiction, Snow Crash, there's not like multiple metaverses. There's, there's one for it to be meta. You know, it, it has to be like the ultimate. And for us, it, it, well, if you look in science fiction, the way it was described in Ready Player One with the Oasis was this economic system that enjoyed supremacy to nation states. In that instance, one company was trying to take control of it. But the kind of key point there was it's an economic system. And secondly, that it enjoys supremacy to nation states, which for me sounds a lot like what we're building with crypto. And so this is why I argue you actually can't be part of the metaverse if you aren't integrated into a meta digital economy. And last time I looked, you know, Fortnite, anything that's going on with Oculus, these are great games. They're like immersive digital experiences, um, but they aren't close to like anything that would enjoy supremacy to fiat-based system of any one nation state. Crypto is increasingly becoming that. And so our argument was that for you to be part of the metaverse, not just a verse, you would have to be integrated into this single unifying digital economy, not of one ledger, not of one blockchain, but like in aggregate, because of course you can freely um, trade dots and ETH, you know, in, in a pair, right? Um, you might use one for one, one thing and one for another, but they are one economic system, right? And I think the great thing about it is, and this is why, of course, we're getting a little bit of a backlash now from nation states and regulators is they're not stupid. Like they realize what's happening here is going to be an economic system that will enjoy supremacy to nation states. It's a matter of time. Um, and so, you know, they're trying to limit, restrict that. And increasingly they're going to realize that that's not possible. So for us, the metaverse is here. It's going to be Web3 enabled, crypto enabled, um, and it's going to suck in increasing amounts of digital value and increasing amounts of economic activity are going to be carried out there through work, play, and all these various things. Just to like set context for the rest of this discussion on like how we're defining the metaverse, um, I at least fully agree with you that like it's basically here and it's not so much about the like fidelity or like immersive experience of some digital world, but rather it's the acceptance of virtual interactions as being inherently real. So like um, when I grew up, like I grew up with like ICQ and uh, AOL Instant Messenger and stuff like that. And like, I would talk to my friends from school on that, um, but that wasn't like how I defined my group of friends. And like, maybe I met some strangers on there, but they were like weird people on the internet <laughs> and that was it. Um, but now like, I mean, working on Polkadot and like, I think like COVID has accelerated this trend, but I don't think it caused it in any way. I think it was already well underway um, because even before COVID hit, I've worked with people at, at Parity and Web3 for two or three years who I've never met in person. And I consider those relationships and interactions to be very real. Yes. Um, and it's not about like having this like crazy AI experience. Like we talk on Zoom and like Element Messenger and Google Meet and stuff like this, but like those are my colleagues and like my community. So yeah, I, I think it's more, it's part technical about like the actual interfaces and protocols to make these connections possible, but it's also the kind of like sociological acceptance 
that virtual experiences and relationships are actually real, like just as real as a, an in-person encounter. Exactly. And the, like adding new technologies or the convergence of technologies just makes it more frictionless, more immersive, more ubiquitous. But you're right. It's here. It's been here a while. Um, the question is, is that economic, is that digital economic activity happening in a silo or is it freely transferable um, and integrated into this like global permissionless system that we're building into crypto? And I think that's going to be the defining factor of, of the metaverse. Yeah. So, so kind of moving into like discussing how we actually build this open metaverse and, and not like a, a siloed version. I want to talk about like a few areas of this Web3 stack that you defined. So like one of them is this kind of like virtual land ownership or like parcels or like having a space in like one of these verses. And, and I'm kind of wondering like what it means. So I, I was kind of confused by this, like, why would I want to like pay a premium on, on this parcel and like a digital economy? Um, because kind of the whole point of like digital technology to me, at least like maybe pre metaverse or before like realizing um, this concept of the metaverse is that like, it's supposed to kind of like tear down these barriers. Like if I want to buy a book, I can buy an ebook, um, and get it on my Kindle. Like now I don't have to go to the bookstore. I don't have to wait for it to be shipped, especially like, you know, I, I lived for several years in France, uh, but I'm a native English speaker. Like I don't want to have a book shipped across the ocean so I can read it. I want to download it. And so I'm kind of wondering, like kind of within a, a single verse, but also like verse to verse, like how do we think about proximity in a virtual world. Yeah. Uh, so this is a really interesting topic. And when I saw um, that we'd be talking about it, I was really excited because um, it's not talked about enough. I, I definitely don't have the answer. So I'm, I'm kind of like thinking aloud a little bit here. But one of the interesting things when you think about introducing scarcity in a digital context is that you're effectively enabling property rights. And at first, especially when you're thinking about the metaverse and things like VR, like the whole promise of the metaverse was abundance, right? You know, we could just have infinite abundance. So why would you then introduce scarcity into the mix? Surely that's like at odds with the principle of what's possible. But the reality is what we've seen proven out, and again, to kind of come back to something like Axies is when you give players in this instance rights, property rights, in the context of the game that they're playing, they will invest more time, money, and effort into it because they have ownership of it. And that ownership, they can freely trade, transact, or use as collateral um, to borrow and lend against. And, you know, these are like the cornerstones of how modern, at least modern economies have been built. And you could you could argue kind of going, going way way back beyond that like the introduction of property rights where you can be sure that you can own something and, and it can't just be confiscated off you means that people have a form of security. They have a kind of baseline of financial independence that they can begin to kind of uh, choose how they invest further time or money into and around. And so you're kind of giving them these like foundations of financial independence. Uh, and that's only possible because of digital scarcity. Right, um, which is a really often overlooked, like ultimately what all of this stuff is about, what blockchains are about, digital scarcity. And it's like what the web broke about many things, even going back to music, right? The, the minute that you had an MP3 file 
um, it lost value because it could be copied innumerable times. It could be shared innumerable times. It devalued that as an asset. It devalued a whole creative industry. Now you can restore that and you can say, yes, it's digital, but it's scarce or it's unique. It can retain value. And, and now increasingly the creator of that value can define the economics of that asset. Um, so you've allowed, again, for this kind of financial emancipation of a whole creator class. So this is kind of the backdrop, the long-winded way of saying it, but like this is the backdrop of digital scarcity and the idea of property rights in virtual worlds, virtual environments, virtual economies. Now, at the Accelerator, at Outlier um, Basecamp, we have any number of projects looking to apply this in the context of AR or VR and virtual worlds. And in, in most cases, actually, they, they basically create a fixed amount of, let's, let's call it virtual land. And that's it. There'll never be any more. And, and that's kind of acting as a baseline for people to buy real estate and then to invest in content and presumably districts then form um, based on proximity, you know, relatively physical proximity, you know, your tiles next to this tile. Now, actually, if you think how people will navigate those worlds, it's unlikely that whilst you could, you're going to have like, you go from A to B in a digital car and go down a virtual road for half an hour and be sat in like 15 minutes of virtual traffic. Just doesn't, doesn't make any sense, right? You could do that, but like, why would you? I just want a port. I want to go from A to B. And actually, I don't really care what's in between. I just need to go from A to B because for a specific context or action. So, so actually, I think proximity in that context is perhaps a bit limited now or a bit of a red herring. Now, one of the really interesting things that I saw, um, and actually the first example of it was in the Polkadot ecosystem, and I've bloody forgotten the name of the startup, but you'll probably know it. The startup out in New Zealand, and they they kind of created something. I don't know if they called it this, or I, I referred to it as it after I saw it, but it was like infinite scarcity. So basically, you can have infinite worlds, but each world is limited to the number of tiles it has in it. I think this is a bit country. There you go. That's it. Right. And this like blew my mind. It's the first time that I saw, for me, that felt like seeing the light because I've been wrestling with this conundrum for like ages. And then all of a sudden, bit country, that's right, it introduced the idea. Okay, well, look, the individual worlds are bound. There are only so many tiles. You can only build so many things in that world. And therefore, proximity to things is is real and relevant, presumably bound by how you navigate it. So you, you, you're forced to navigate in, a, in like a physical dimension. Um, but there can be infinite number of worlds. And so for me, that married the two things really well. Now, will that be the one that wins as a model? I don't know. But again, the really cool thing about the space is, and this is why I just do not get why every economist on the planet is not excited by it. This is like the largest socioeconomic experiment we've ever witnessed in the history of mankind, real time. And people are just taking basic economic, social primitives, combining them in different ways, and then seeing 
this kind of global permissionless gameplay out on top of it. And you can watch multiple instances happen in parallel and you can quantify like which ones work, which ones don't work, which ones fall down, and then you can fork them. I mean, it's like insane really to, to think about this thing that we're all doing together. Yeah, it's. I actually like how you described it as a single economic system um, or financial system at the beginning, um, but with multiple instances within it. So it, it kind of brings into like tangentially brings in like interoperability and the fact that like you have to be able to kind of like port across these different networks, um, but that it is still like under like an overarching singular system, but for with room for a lot of different experimentation within it. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, like you kind of mentioned this idea of like individual sovereignty and, and stuff. And um, I, I think like this kind of goes along the lines of like um, what Zubov wrote in uh, Age of Surveillance Capitalism and um, what you had talked about um, with the convergence of DLT, IoT, and AI. And um, have you read Age of Surveillance Capitalism or no? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've tried to. It's a big <laughs> book, right? So I think, I've, I think I've done two attempts and I tried to get through it once. I got like halfway through and then I had to go, oh, shit, I've got to read the whole thing again. So then I got three quarters way through. I don't think I've completed it yet, but I'm, okay. I think I've got the basic principles. Uh, so actually like one of the interesting twists to me was that like she starts out kind of in the first third of the book as being highly critical of like libertarian economics, like especially Hayek. And um, at the end, like kind of in like the last 10% of the book or so, she actually kind of like comes around and is like, rather than criticizing this libertarian principle of a free market, so it's basically that like in surveillance capitalism, a couple companies have concentrated so much power and knowledge that you can't really apply the same economic models to them because like the whole idea of like a free market kind of assumes everybody is like generally ignorant. They know one or two things very well and they know how to like market and sell those skills and respond to incentives about that thing. But nobody has this like overview of the entire economy. And since like a couple of companies, like primarily Google and Facebook kind of do have this overview of the, the entire economy, um, but individuals don't, these companies can kind of like pull strings and like manipulate people to do um, what these companies want. And so I think like this kind of like goes, especially into like AI and IOT of like, well, how do we kind of break that trend and make sure that we get the benefits of these like massive data aggregation systems and predictive models, but without amassing those powers into just like a few entities that are controlled by shareholders. Um, and, and so I, I kind of like to yeah, hear, hear your opinion about like how we enable these technologies, but in a way in business models in this metaverse, such that um, the actual aligned with Web3 that it prioritizes directing this value towards users rather than like specific platforms. Yeah, so this is this has again been like something I've wrestled with for a while until recently when something clicked um and i can't remember what it was but i tweeted something a couple of weeks ago so you know i like the 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 book the sovereign individual had a really big impact on me and my understanding of web3 and, and and what we're doing in it and it was a bit it was slightly uncomfortable reading right because effectively it predicts the collapse of sovereign nation and this you know since the Westphalian Pact, like this concept of what is a nation. And, you know, it basically said that, well, you know, sadly, the kind of poor and the middle class need this nation state are, are just going to have to suck it up because wealth's going to become sovereign. It's going to move offshore. It's going to go to places like Dubai and Singapore and 
you know, given I think it's more than three quarters of global wealth is actually sat in the you know remnants of the British Empire on various islands at the moment, like that's definitely true. And you can now see this populist backlash against that 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 happening, right? Whether you agree with its tone or message or not, like that's played out given this was, you know, written over a decade ago. So I kind of agreed with the direction of travel, but have never identified as a libertarian per se, right? And maybe that's because I'm in Europe or, or was in Europe before we uh, decided to leave in the UK. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always felt that there's the need for state intervention to allow for markets to function properly, right? If you just had an entirely free market. And by the way, this was a design principle by Tim Berners-Lee, like very clearly um, he actively and deliberately didn't want to, he, he effectively wanted a free market. If you look at Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, you know, it explicitly uh, says it wants to remove a lot of the kind of institutions of the state and, and these various things. That created a vacuum, right? Because if you just have an entirely free market in the, in the old paradigm anyway, then huge amounts of value would consolidate into these te- single technology companies that would monopolize you know, a particular market. Um, and because the commodity that they were amassing was data to power AI to give better experience in effect, whether it's better ads or better search results or you know, whatever else it may be, the reality is they become uncatchable, right? You know, it's just impossible, I would say, for a new entrant to come into that market and compete with them on the same terms. You look at Amazon, Amazon's still loss-making, right? You know, crazy to think, right? It's reached the scale that it's reached and it's still loss-making because it can basically get money cheaper than anybody else on Wall Street, right? So try and compete with a company that's losing billions of dollars every year as a startup. Not going to happen. Um, so it's just allowed them to achieve the, these economies of scale. Now, the interesting thing about Web3 is that at its core, it also allows, it's based upon free markets. It's this permissionless market. So anybody can can and will create a competitive solution if there's an opportunity. They'll undercut you if there's an opportunity. They'll deliver more yield if there's an opportunity. It's like hyper-competition. It's like the ultimate free market. But because it's centered around the sovereignty of the individual and that individual can freely form or participate in collectives, it feels like there's a counterbalance. So A, it's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that value is going to concentrate into single corporations in a Web3 context. It might at the intersection of kind of CFI and DeFi. So if you look at you know, Coinbase, right? You know, that's big monster of a corporation now because it's at this intersection of the fiat-based system and corporation and equity and shareholders and stock markets and crypto. But like, if you're talking about things that just are native to and live and exist within Web3, because a user can leave at any point, how many people would have left Facebook, you know, years ago if it was easy to just port their identity data and friends? Like probably most people that I know. Of course, younger generations just don't even use that platform. 
Most people are stuck there, like they're trapped deliberately by design. You know, it's called the, these walled gardens that are moats that every VC, it's the, the dream of a VC and a Web2 entrepreneur. Those things just do not exist in Web3. So, so I think that, you know, if you read books like Master Switch by Tim Wu, he always spoke about this bundling and unbundling and unbundling in technology cycles. One new technology, disruptive technology would come along, it would unbundle these kind of platforms or monopolies from the previous cycle. Um, but they would always bundle back up. You would always end up with another monopoly. I'm not sure that's true in Web3. And I, I would actually go as far as to say it's improbable. And, uh, you know, s- similarly, we know that the, uh, and that's because the individual's sovereignty is, is preserved. But then to the other point, that doesn't mean that we end up with this hyper individualistic like libertarian wet dream because actually as we're seeing with DAOs, it allows for this fluid collectivism and i don't think we've really begun to see like the full power of that of course we know most blockchains are collectives the people that are committing resource to a network um, to secure it and to enjoy the benefits of it they're participating in its economic success hopefully but like we've not seen on top of that, like average people being able to beyond owning a little bit of that cryptocurrency or, or digital commodity, digital asset, like being able to kind of freely form these these fluid collectives. And I think once that starts to happen, and I, I hate to say it because it sounds just utopic, but like it, it feels like the ideal scenario: free markets, the the sovereign individual, and fluid collectivism. Yeah, I actually, like, I would say personally, like from maybe like 10 years ago to five years ago, I would have called myself a libertarian and um, I don't really know what to call myself anymore. Like I would say I've kind of moved away from that, but I don't know exactly how to define it. But in I would say like, I think that the idea of like a physical, like geographic nation state um, still makes sense and has value as a construct and a way to organize people. It's just that with Web3, or the web in general is not the only construct. So um, historically, like you might have only identified as a citizen of some country, whereas now like, people can be citizens of these like online communities, and they can also change their citizenship and like move to other communities, um, or at least in like open communities. I kind of like see it that way, like that there's kind of room for both. Like, you can have nation states as a construct, um, but you can also have other constructs and ways for people to organize on top of that, and um, I even kind of wonder about like, like we said, like Amazon, like they can just borrow money because they have like physical assets and a company and this thing that like as an idea has long-term value that they can use as collateral. Um, But there's kind of like this parallel trend, like completely outside of blockchain, but just like in cloud computing of like infrastructure as code. And you can kind of like apply that mode of thinking to like some kind of like application on the web of like, well, this is infrastructure as code and it has value as a community, but just like code, people can kind of like fork it and copy it into something else. Like if they don't like what you're doing. So you end up with this like hyper competition between these different entities that can exist within this digital jurisdiction. So they're like the libertarian, like just hyper competition element of it, but you still have the collective capacity of like people within this jurisdiction to organize and act as a collective together. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way of, of summarizing it. And actually, to your original question, which I 
fail to answer when a bit of a tangent, you know, this idea around de- data and, and what that means. I actually think that, so you're right, you know, today I'm sat in the UK, whether I like it or not. Um, but, it, but increasingly my wealth and time are generated in the metaverse. And, you know, one of the things that everybody's doing, like everybody on the planet today is doing in the metaverse is creating data. Um, and for us, like the most immediate and obvious use case when we were looking at blockchains was this kind of commodification financialization of data. That's why we we invested in Ocean Protocol way back. That's why we invested in Fetch.ai, who are looking at the compute side. And you know, this idea that you know we're gonna produce data and ideally we would either own, directly own and control it. At the very least, we'll be able to monetize it and we would be able to give permissioning as to who can use it on on what terms and we could revoke those permissions. And like the reality is in Web2, none of those things are possible. So we're seeing a lot of startups that have gone through, historically gone through our accelerator and even now they're working on ideas of allowing for almost a universal basic income around data. You think of the value of the data economy, most valuable commodities on the planet, apparently, underpins most big tech's share price. And so if we can begin to unlock that, that can form a passive income for the global population. And I think for many people will actually be the first digital asset that they convert into crypto somehow. So like, you know, they'll cash out into DOT or Bitcoin or whatever um, from their income that they've earned by, you know, connecting up their browsing data. For example, we've got a company called Streamer. They've got 30,000, maybe 40,000 users now. They just put a plugin into their browser. They passively can earn income from their browsing data. It's anonymized. Um, you've got, you know, projects where you can kind of commit that data set into a data union based on different parameters, right? So you can donate that data for a good cause, for some kind of medical breakthrough. You know, you can commit it to a, a group of like-minded people to create a powerful data set for, you know, a particular category of people. Um, however they might identify. And you can aggregate that data set and increase its premium um, into data marketplaces and Ocean Protocol have done IDOs, initial data offerings, where you take that aggregate and then and then effectively auction it to the highest bidder. Um, so I think that like one of the most, coming back to this idea of digital value that exists that's currently trapped in platforms in the metaverse, data's like it. The problem is it's, for an individual user, it's not worth that much, right? You know, to, to necessarily bother, which is why you need ways to aggregate it. And that's why I think data unions and stuff is going to be really powerful. And especially in the context of Polkadot and Kasama, right? Because because you can easily define the economic terms of a, a parachain, you can set the parameters of its governance. It will allow, it will lend itself much more easily to you know, taking control of these these digital assets and, and building new business models around them. Yeah, that's like always been an interesting property to me about the um, digital or like the value of data is that most goods in like, according to classical economics would have some kind of like a 
declining marginal value. So like if you have um, if you have two of something, the third one is can be quite valuable. But if you have a thousand of something, the one thousand and one is not that valuable. Right. Whereas with data, if you have like one person's Amazon shopping history, it's not really that useful. But if you have a billion people's Amazon shopping history, then the billion plus one is super valuable because you have so much data that you can just target that person and basically coerce them in, into buying whatever you want them to. So like that one piece of data or one data set is actually supremely valuable. And so I kind of wonder like along these lines of like digital spaces being their own communities, like, and you mentioned universal basic income and like, we've kind of like overarching had this theme of like people owning their own data, like, can these turn into like start and actually like creep into the realm of a nation state? And so like have these programs like universal basic income or like taxation, wealth redistribution, um, provision of digital services. Um, and like, how does, how does the metaverse actually start to compete with like physical nation states? Yeah. So, and this is the bit, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm kind of working through, right. But as, as the regulatory environment is tightening the screw, I'm increasingly, I was, I was like holding out that maybe some forward thinking nations, perhaps not the U S cause they've got the most to lose, right. From their kind of homogeny, the supremacy of the dollar, anything else, but like certainly the UK post Brexit, right. It's kind of like an Island drifting off, trying to find its purpose. There's real opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, if we're, if we're trying to get better aligned with, is it the U S is it Europe? Is it China? Well, there's this emergent economy, um, the metaverse, uh, which you could just think of as this universal, you know, digital economy, it's going to be order of magnitudes greater than the economic cycle of China. What that meant to global GDP, I don't know how much more. Is it two x, three x, ten x? I mean, it's totally conceivable it could be ten x if you think about the value uh, as an equivalent value of, of GDP that was generated by two decades of growth in China versus exponential growth that we're going to be experiencing in the metaverse. So for me, I was hoping that a forward-thinking nation would go, well, actually, you know, that's that's a good economy to align, to integrate with, but it's not really happened. It's not really happened anywhere, right? At best, you've got somewhere like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin from a treasury kind of perspective. So, so that's kind of disappointing. And when you see this kind of backlash now from regulators, not only not proactively engaging with it, but reacting to it, trying to restrict it. I kind of been stuck with this mantra that I'm, I kind of repeat all the time now, which is exit fiat and enter the metaverse, right? Because the more you look at the fiat system, the more fucked it is, right? I mean, you speak to any macro investor and I've never met one that thinks that fiat in any context, European context, US context, Chinese context, is going to hold, right? You've got aging populations. You've got, you know, this massively inflationary debt, indebted societies. Um, they can't cover social care in most instances. You know, it's like, it's not looking good. And the only solution they have is to print print more money in effect. So that feels like there's one direction that that's heading. We have this parallel system that is the exact opposite of that. As I mentioned earlier, it's growing, more values being created. Um, it has, you know, digital scarcity, fixed supply, fixed monetary supply. And even if one instance didn't get it right, there are multiple that you could adopt, right? It's not reliant upon one specific system to hold. So what I've been really thinking through is how do you help? So you can say that 
and people go, okay, I subscribe to that. I subscribe to the fact that fiat's fucked. I subscribe to the fact that crypto web three, the metaverse is an alternative system. It's a, it's a better system, but like I'm sat here in, you know, Zimbabwe or London or wherever, like, how do I begin that transition? And so I think it's about, on the one hand, you know, getting a stake in that system, whether it's through what you might class as a cryptocurrency or a digital commodity, in effectively a value chain, a supply chain that you think is going to underpin economic activity, dot, ETH, whatever it may be. And then it's also looking at like how you invest your time, right? And, and it could be you just um, use some of these specialist protocols to make some of your compute available, or like you participate, like if you don't have money, you just got hardware or you've got internet connection, a bit of electricity, cheap electricity, you know, you can begin to participate in these digital economies in the metaverse by just making some of your hardware available, some of your compute available, some of your bandwidth available. You're not going to get rich off it, but you can begin to earn an income, an income in that economy, in the digital economy. Um, but then of course there are things like, you know, whether it's, speculating whether it's investing collecting things like nfts or just participating in play to earn economies now your guild games by gabby dizon have been doing some really great things with axes most axes are prohibitively high for people the average person to buy to join that economy so they've got scholarships now through your guild games where people will cover the costs of you having the equipment axes to participate in the system to earn an income. And so, you know, we're starting to see people create jobs in the metaverse to put their assets to work. And we're starting to see DAOs take control and governance of, of some of these assets. And, you know, some people in those DAO will have to carry out functional work or labor. Um, and so I think increasingly there are going to be opportunities to earn active or passive income in these economies where people will probably forever keep it in there, you know, um, and they'll in increasingly migrate their time and money into the metaverse. And I think this is going to be one of the greatest migrations humanity's ever known. And so the question is, at what point does that fiat system, like the nation that you're sat in, go, well, actually, I'd really like to tax all of that stuff. At that point, I think governments will start to be a bit more proactive because they'll want a bit of your income that you're earning. And, and all of a sudden they won't care that you're earning it in crypto and you're doing it through all these things that currently they think are, you know, illicit or dark markets. Um, they'll want a piece of it because they'll need it. Um, they'll need to plug into that growth engine to tax it, to support this physical infrastructure. So I think it's going to be, it's going to get to a point where the metaverse has to reach a certain certain threshold of digital economic activity and value before politicians begin to reflect that in policy. And what I would say is we're probably that far off. You think generationally, I don't know, below the age of 30, 25, 18, increasingly wealth is going to be generated in the digital context, right? And these people are going to become tomorrow's politicians. And if they're not tomorrow's politicians, tomorrow's politicians will want their vote. And currently, they are financially excluded explicitly from the, the current financial system, from banking, borrowing, lending. Um, so it's going to be a matter of time before politicians have to reflect this in policy. Yeah, totally agree. And that kind of brings us to like the last part of the stack, which is like the user experience. Like, how do we actually make this migration happen and get people in? 
I think that like, so we hear kind of all the time in crypto, like, oh, the user experience is terrible and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think this is kind of misdirected or um, not productive for a few reasons. Like one, I know a ton of great user UX developers who are working in the space and to kind of just say like, oh, well, what they've made is shit is like, I, I think really uh, unhelpful. Um, I, I think it points to like two things. One is just like a lack of tooling to build these user experiences on top of like, we see things like Etherscan, like Block Explorer for a single blockchain, but I, I haven't really seen some kind of tool that would show you like, okay, I made this one transaction and it sent these cross-chain messages and it's, you know, uh, trigger this like real world change in, in assets and all of this other stuff. And like, I would want to know like, okay, well, I, I made this one action, like what were kind of the results of that? And so uh, I think there's a big tooling layer, but also everyone is kind of comparing these experiences in the context of Web2 experiences. And in a lot of ways, I think Web3 user experience could actually be better if you don't have to manage, you know, a thousand usernames and passwords. And so I'm kind of curious, like what you see as missing in the stack to make, or I guess, first of all, do you agree with me that the user experience is shit argument is like not very productive or uh, maybe you also think that it just is, but also like uh, if, if you do agree with me, like what kind of tooling do you think could make this better? And um, how would you think like the experience of being in Web3 or the metaverse would differ from like the kind of like average user's expectations of a user experience in Web2? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a couple of ways to answer that, right? So um, firstly, you know, we've, we've focused the last couple of years on investing in middleware. So making the Web3 stack usable for the average developer. So when people think of adoption, they generally think of like consumers using consumer interfacing apps. But actually, like that happens after 99% of developers can use this stuff and build equivalent SaaS type businesses. Um, and I don't know what the number would be, but I think it'd be safe to say 90% of developers on the planet are not using Web3. They don't know about it. They don't care about it. They can't use it. They're building Web2 apps. And when they're building Web2 apps, they're building Web2 business models. And so all the things that we've spent, you know, the last hour or so talking about around user centricity, Web3, um, are not reflected in most startups today. You know, I, I, it still blows my mind that the majority of startups today are being built on Web2 principles. Like they're, they're zombies. They're like the walking dead, right? But they still get financed millions of dollars. They'll go through something like Y Combinator and they'll, they'll do fine um, until they're dead, you know, before they know it. Now, why is that? Well, because there, there are two parts to building an app um, that can have a SaaS type equivalent service to an end user. You know, one is the kind of the technical experience of that, um, like, you know, functionally, what can and can't you do? And, and you know, how long do you have to wait for that action to, to, to happen if, it's, if you're kind of waiting for something on chain? Um, but then there's the economic component. And I don't just mean like gas on Ethereum. I mean, especially in a multi-chain environment, right? So... Let's say I have an app that wants to do something with, uh, it, it requires me to do something on Filecoin. Um, it requires me to do something on Dot or like, you know, multiple functions across specialist things. Both of those have costs. The underlying cost of them, because the digital commodity fluctuates, 
And so I actually don't know the cost to serve a user day to day. So how can I offer them a fixed price? I can't, right? Because I'd like to be able to say it's $9.99 a month. That's it. No surprises. Very hard to do that in a Web3 context, even with just when you're relying on one blockchain. But when you're relying on multiple in your stack, it just creates an order of comp economic complexity. And so I think there's the two things. It's like functionally what you're trying to do in, in that application. And the second one is like the economic complexity. Those two things combined make it prohibitively hard to create a, a SaaS type business with fixed price, which is like the baseline for most digital services on, on the web right now. Yeah, that's actually something we're kind of addressing in Polkadot. Right. That like users would be able to transact on certain parachains in the network without even owning like any kind of underlying assets. Um, but you could kind of encode these rules like, well, if this user um, has registered an identity through some, like has signed in through like their identity chain or whatever, or meets some other criteria, like whatever you want to set, then like, well, this user could make these types of transactions and still interact with this Web3 system, even without owning like any kind of like underlying like monetary asset. Right. And that's not just the user, right? That's the operator of the application. And so we've got a project called Adexo, which was a spin out that, that worked on exactly that. It effectively creates a futures market beneath that allows for people to lock in the price of the commodity to serve that user so they can fix in the price and the cost to serve. And so I think like all of this stuff's coming, but you know, the Web3 stack has by design prioritized different things to Web2, right? Um, and these kind of principles that we've we've discussed throughout network security or like whatever it might be almost at the expense of user experience i think that's being solved it's increasingly being solved through things like polkadot um but also like fundamental primitives that are allowing to abstract both technical and economic complexity from from dap development so i, I i'm i don't know it's incredibly complex you know, every time you kind of peel a layer off, there's like another one, you know, shoot, we've got to solve that too. But it is happening. There's enough brain power. I mean, the brain trust that we've got in Web3 is just like unparalleled, I think. And the range of disciplines of people that are kind of coming in. Um, so so I think it's coming. And, you know, the reason why we've, we've partnered with Polkadot, which I guess kind of teases up nicely to talk about the collaboration at the end, is precisely because Polkadot is, is removing many of these barriers to developing dApps that can have business models that feel familiar to an end user. Yeah, that kind of moves us into to wrapping up with um, the Outlier Ventures Basecamp partnered with Polkadot. And um, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about um, this program and who's involved and, and its goals. So we, we have something called Basecamp, which is like a protocol agnostic accelerator. Um, we've run it for about two and a half years now. Um, and as I said, accelerated nearly 100 startups. In parallel to that, we've begun working with um, specific ecosystems around a, a protocol um, to accelerate the startups within those ecosystems. Um, and that's primarily because, you know, there's now a huge amount of capital and entrepreneurs and developers within ecosystems. But there is a big gap between a hackathon and like a POC and actually turning that into a well-capitalized, high-growth startup. It doesn't have to be a company. You know, it could be a, could be a DAO, could be a, a, a protocol on, on top of the protocol. But, but ultimately, 
Um, that's like really hard to do. And like startup life is hard anyway, let alone being a Web3 startup. 95% of startups fail in their first two years. That's no different in, in crypto Web3. And so, you know, we've engaged with the Polkadot ecosystem to look at this kind of rich, rich ecosystem of entrepreneur, developer, and to provide them a structure. So it's a three-month intense daily program with two-month aftercare where we take a team um, and they come at different stages of maturity, to be honest with you. And we catalyze around them both our network, which we've built up over the last eight years, and that of you know Polkadot, Web3, Parity, to both make sure they're capitalized, they've got the right people, the right strategic people, they structure that digital economy in the appropriate way, they think through governance, but also do some of the basics around product market fit, go-to-market strategy, you know, helping them secure their first customers and partners. And so we're really happy to have begun our first cohort with Polkadot, it just kicked off. This is our kind of full 2021 program. We'll be running several of them over the next um, couple of years. And we've got some really great startups in there. Um, I think showing both the range of opportunity in the context of everything that we've just discussed today from a, a game DAO, which is effectively providing fundraising coordination and ownership for gaming and game publishing. Um, we've got PopX, which is a music NFT platform for artists to engage with fans. We've got RAN Network, which is a gamified yield farming platform um, for millennials, which effectively is like an unbank or, or neobank. Um, we've got Readle, which is doing a decentralized NFT ebook publishing. So to actually really upgrade what an ebook is in terms of a, a rich experience. Um, and then uh, something called Uplink, which is a uh, decentralized hardware-free internet. And that's allowing for people to throw into the network devices to share connectivity and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can just see with some of those examples, and that's just a handful of them, the, the range of use case that's out there. You know, these are projects that have already committed to building on Polkadot, but they needed help commercially to, to kind of take these things to market. And so, you know, if you are in the Polkadot ecosystem or Kasama ecosystem and, uh, you know, you need help with any things that I just mentioned, you know, we're, we're specifically set up that the kind of way to think of outliers with a kind of Y combinator for the metaverse. Um, and, you know, we're very lucky to kind of have partners uh, like you guys to kind of help realize and, and catalyze that ecosystem. Yeah, I think these like uh, these programs are super valuable. Uh, I mean, I'm biased because I'm a mentor for this cohort, so I'm quite excited to see how it goes. And it's my first time participating in something like this. But yeah, I've been through the startup thing. Like, um, I wish I had kind of an accelerator like this many years ago. Like, I I started like two or three companies that kind of failed, and ultimately, like, kind of just led me to apply for a what I thought was a stable, normal job at Parity in 2018, which is also a Web3 startup. Uh, and it's been like a lot of fun, but uh, I think like, yeah, it's getting a startup off the ground is really hard. And uh, if the research that you have just published for like the public is any indication, uh, you obviously have a, a really strong team that's kind of working on these programs and, and help get them going. Um, and I think even just like, not just product market fit, but identifying the product. Like I know I worked on a couple of things like as solo printer projects, back in like 16, 17, 
that like I look at them now and I'm like, oh, that thing that I did that was like step two of 20 to build the thing that I was building, like that thing was the product. Like that's what I should have marketed and sold. Um, right. But I, I totally missed it. And like now it's like clear as day, but um, you don't always really see those opportunities when you have your mind like focused on a, a vision down the road. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited to see how, uh, how Basecamp goes and um, yeah, everything that comes out of it. Yeah, look, you know, in startup world, time is money. And so I don't doubt most of the startups that we work with could eventually get there, but it might take them a couple of years because they've got a small team. They don't have all the competencies. You know, we've got all the specialisms on tap. We've got the learnings of working with 100 startups. We've got a 1,000 investors in our network. We've got great mentors like you. Um, and as you say, we can provide that outside perspective, not just us, but this network of mentors, partners. And so like, it really does accelerate the journey of a startup. And so what we do with startups in three months is the equivalent of 12 or 18 months worth of time. That would have cost them several million in money if they're lucky enough to survive the first year of being a startup, because it's, it's hard. Um, but also just like your sanity, as you said, like being an entrepreneur myself, um, the entrepreneurial journey is really hard. It's stressful and you most likely lose all your money doing it. Right. And so like anything that de-risks that for me is worth it. I wish, you know, when I was doing startups, I'd gone through an accelerator. I'll be honest with you. I didn't have the humility to do it. The, the best founders that have gone through our accelerator that have gone on to build multi-billion dollar networks have been the most humble people. Like they're good at acknowledging what they're good at, where they've got gaps. They bring in experts to help them fill that gap and they kind of focus on, you know, the, the, the fundamentals. Yeah, it's really hard to, to build something and um, to kind of, yeah, to, to hire an expert and let go a little bit. Because as a, I know, like as a founder, like you just want to like have control of everything. And um, <laughs> it's like really hard to say, oh, somebody else is better at this. I should just let them run with it. That's right. So what I would say is um, to kind of close off, um, if you're working in the Web3 space, you know, or, or Polkadot specifically, go to outlierventures.io slash Basecamp, apply. We're basically perpetually recruiting. We've just begun this current cohort, but we're recruiting for the next one almost immediately. We run them pretty much back to back throughout the year. Um, and we'd love to help you. Yeah, um, we've gone quite a bit over time. Uh, sorry about that, but it was just uh, really exciting and uh, a million tangents that I always wanted to, to go off of. Uh, it was like really good discussion. So thank you, Jamie, for coming on. No, thanks for having me on. I, you know, the problem with this, I think we we're actually quite restrained in the tangents that we didn't explore, but you know, that, that shows you that, that how exciting this space is, right? Yeah, we, we've gone over, but that was, uh, that was with the filter on, at least for me. That's fun. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Relay Chain. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the subjects we talked about today. So please reach out to us on Twitter at RelayChain or by email podcast at parity.io. The team at Parity has some of the brightest minds working towards building a robust and inclusive ecosystem that puts power back into the hands of its community members. With cross-chain communication as a primary goal, we aim to break down the tribalistic barriers that have formed throughout the blockchain industry. If you want to learn more about what we're building, or if you want to join our team, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter.